I V M. Well over a hundred million people in India are estimated to suffer from one kind of a mental illness or another, and are in need of medical intervention. But to intervene, India has just about six thousand psychiatrists and a smaller number of trained psychologists. With social stigma attached to mental illnesses being so high, mental health is a challenge that needs societal, governmental, and private action at the same time. Pavitra Jairaman and Dr. Sabina Rao join me today to help us understand the challenges facing mental health in India. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics, and international relations. I'm your host, Pavan Srinath. Our guests today are Dr. Sabina Rao and Pavitra Jairaman. Dr. Sabina Rao is a practicing psychiatrist in Bangalore with about two decades of experience, and Pavitra Jairaman is the head of content at the White Swan Foundation for Mental Health, a not-for-profit in Bangalore dedicated to providing better information on mental health to patients, caregivers, and others, both in English and in a host of Indian languages. We'll start our conversation with Pavitra and Dr. Rao after a short break. Hey everybody! Welcome to another great week on the IVM podcast. It's been a really fun week. Also, just a reminder: if you're not following us on social media, please do. We're IVM Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One thing that we are trying to do as much of as possible, and we want to keep doing this, is if you hear something that you really enjoy, take a screenshot of it and tag us on uh, whatever social media platform you prefer, and we'll try and repost that. If you want to keep your listening light and funny this week, check out shows like Cyrus Says, Golgappa, and the Empowering Series on Cyrus Says. Cyrus talks to hosts of another IVM show, Football Shootball, Gaurav Sapre, Kartik Ayer, and Sivram Padmanabhan. Tune in to listen to some fun conversation about sports, advertising, and Bollywood. On Golgappa, Tripti is joined by cinematographer Milan Zog, who shares rip-tickling stories from his shoots. And on the Empowering Series, Zarina is joined by comedian Suresh Menon. They talk about his early days in comedy, his chemistry with Jose, and how he started Kan Masti. If pop culture is what's going to get your engine going this week, then you know we got shows like Geek Fruit, where Tejas and Disney this week are rounding up the hits and misses of announcements made at Disney's D23 Expo. Mr. and Mrs. Binge Watch, you know, I mean, like that's a really fun show where Janice and Arun talk about TV showrunner Jenji Kohan and her extremely successful Netflix shows, as Orange is the New Black, and I can't remember the other one, but they've got another really good one too. On IVM Likes, Abbas Antrikshan and Darius discuss the film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and rate their top five Tarantino films. Man, I wish they'd call me to do that. So if you only have a really short time and you want to check out some of our shorter stuff, you can check out Origins of Things, where Chuck narrates a brand origin story involving a tabloid and a gold digger. It's going to be fun guessing which brand this is. And on the Habit Coach, Ashton shares some interesting facts about coffees and afternoon naps. And also, don't forget to check out Urmi Kothari on the Kinetic Living podcast, where she has Thriving Thursdays and Tabata Tuesdays, both of which are, eh, if you want to be fit, you should do those things. On our new coming of age show, Agla Station Adulthood, host Ritasha and Ayushi discuss casual dating, hookups, and modern day love. On keeping it queer, Naveen and Farhad talk to producer Madhuri Advani about body image issues. But with that, let's get you on with the show. Hi, I'm Pavan Shrinath, and welcome to the Pragati Podcast. Uh, hi, Dr. Sabina, welcome, and hi, Pavitra. Hi. So, in India, we have so many health challenges, starting from you know basic nutrition and uh, hygiene um, to a whole swathe of infectious diseases. So when often we start thinking about mental health as a public concern, it feels like a first world problem, but it's far from the reality, right? That's true. I uh, a lot of people will just because of the way we are culturally defined, and I think the way traditionally things have been done in India, the idea that you're you might have a mental health problem is considered something maybe you're influenced by the West 
or your thoughts are too Western or you've grown up into Western society. I think that's really, really far from the truth. I think we are probably the one country that is having, other than our economic challenges, our social challenges, our health challenges, mental health is a very big challenge in India. And I think it's come to the notice of the government. But as a society, uh, it's still, uh, people are really surprised when you give them numbers and you give them, you know, your what you're suffering from is not unusual. 15% of the people suffer from the same thing. It's very surprising to people that they're not the only ones with as something as, to me, common as a panic attack. And and this is a place where it's very different from, say, the government thinking of, say, a polio eradication program, right? As massive as the infrastructure uh, is needed for something like that, it is something that the government can tell everyone saying, hey, at this age, you have to get the polio vaccine to your children. And it's something that can be executed. But something like this, you have to change people's minds, build awareness, get them to understand that there might be challenges even before you can intervene as anyone, right? It probably is true just because it's mental health. Mm. Even polio eradication did take some time to become the most important thing that the country decided to do. If you look at even public health, tuberculosis, malaria, we haven't done away with any of it. The only thing we've actually succeeded is smallpox and uh, polio. Uh, Hopefully polio will stay that way. So mental health probably has that many more decades to go before people say, you know what, this is a problem. This is curable and I should do everything to get to cure. Right. Right. Uh, So could you give us a sense of the scale of the mental health um, challenges that we have in the country, Pavitra? Sure. So um, in 2015 and 16, uh, NIMHANS did the National Mental Health Survey, which um, looked at prevalence. And this was a -a one-of-a-kind survey. It was done in 12 states with like a sample size of around 3,000-odd people. So that is as comprehensive as any survey has been in India, at least in the past decade or so, is is my understanding. And uh, they sort of quote that the mental morbidity, which is that the general prevalence of mental illnesses in the country is at around 10.6%, which sort of translates to that at the current 1.3 billion people, 150 million Indians are in need of active intervention. That's a very, very large number in terms of just prevalence. And you're saying this is mental illness, this is not just mental health issues or anything, this is something that can pass some sort of a clinical threshold. Uh, Not even substance use, because that's one of the things that the survey did record to look at what is the prevalence of tobacco-based disorders. So this number is outside of tobacco-based disorders, which then makes the number even larger. So from a prevalence perspective, we are looking at some significant numbers. But just to go back to your previous question about how we look at physical health issues, and it seems like we seem to have, at least from a public health communication perspective, seem to have arrived at what is the solution. Um, Now, the difference is, I think, with mental health is with tuberculosis, you're looking at just TB. Uh, With mental illness, you're looking at a spectrum of illnesses, uh, most of which are fairly invisible. So detection, reporting, there are so many issues that come in over here that even if you were to make do a public health campaign, what are you really targeting? So do you go with the largest numbers? Do you go with um, easiest to tackle? So I think we're very far away from to making this a public health issue. But we do have the Mental Health Care Act that I suppose we'll come to later. Yes. Yeah. So 10%. So 130 million people are suffering from one mental illness or the other. Yes. Um, what are the most common things say that the survey found? So um, it's broadly divided into 
psychotic disorders, which is a small percentage. Then they've divided it into mood affective disorders, bipolar affective disorders, neurotic disorders, which is mostly the anxiety related disorders that Dr. Sabina should be able to explain better. But largely looking at mostly common mental illnesses common. and the psychotic disorders and the bipolar disorders is what I would go into the category of Rare. the more of the, yeah. Rarer ones. So, okay. so we are looking at people with, and most of these are largely invisible. Right. You know, it's only when you have psychotic disorders that you see very visible symptoms of uh, mental illness, right? Yeah. Is that So just to add to that, and the, the difference between what she previously said is also that illness, if you were talking about TB or malaria, you could do a blood test. Right. Yeah. And and you don't have any such, uh, currently we do not have anywhere in the world test that would pinpoint this is a mental health diagnosis. You have here, let me show you what you have. Uh-huh. So I, I don't even have other than a scale, like an objective reporting system I could use, like a set of questions. I don't have anything else to show the patient, like an x-ray or a CT scan. Right. A lot of people will come and say, why don't we just do an MRI? We can find it. You won't find anything on an MRI. So that's that makes it, the, I, I would say, other than all the cultural belief systems, a very big challenge. So in that sense, physiologically, this is not something that can be detected very easily. Even if there are actual physiological changes that may or may not happen in the brain, this is not something, it will result in a test going positive or negative. That's right. right. You will see, so somebody starts to lose weight, they start like 5 kgs, 6 kgs, they may start to lose weight and and, but at the same time, they also start to isolate themselves. And this would right. be in something like, let's say, so-called common mental illness. Mm-hmm. And they only call common because the numbers are higher right. as opposed to bipolar or schizophrenia, which are very rare illnesses. Uh, that's why they're called common. So also the person starts to isolate. So you might even miss it. Right. You may not even notice. Mm-hmm. And, and this won't happen overnight. It's usually over weeks and months, in which case you completely might miss it. So could you give us a sense, you uh, use the terms sort of psychotic disorders, neurotic disorders. Could you give us a sense of the various kinds of mental health illnesses that are common? How would you even start classifying them? So that is an ICD classification which uses words like psychotic and neurotic. If you go to some of the other Western societies like the United States, they don't use those psychotic, neurotic, because it's almost like you're neurotic. You know, it's become a colloquial yeah. word. So it, And it has a bad, it can have a bad connotation. So a lot of... Western countries, but in the ICD, it's still new. So psychotic is... The ICD being? The International Classification of Diseases, which which includes every disease in the world. Okay. Whereas the the United States uses DSM, which is a diagnostic manual of only psychiatric illnesses. Okay. So the DSM-5 is currently in use. Okay. But it's a research manual, Mm. not really meant to make diagnosis, but that's what it's used for anyhow. Okay. To come back to your point, um, psychotic disorders would be... Primarily those where you lose touch with reality. So you might start to go into the realm of unreal. Mm -hmm. Like you might start to believe things that are not true. And everyone knows around you that it's not true, but you believe it's happening. That's sort of in the range of psychotic. In neurotic, things like anxiety, depression, panic, uh, even even to the most extent, obsessive compulsions, washing hands a lot, feeling down, feeling sad, palpitations, sweating, shortness of breath, which is a panic attack. You're very aware. It's not like Mm. you don't know. You don't know why. You don't know where it came from, but you know very well that you're not feeling very well. So that would come under the having an insight, kind of knowing what's going on versus not even being aware that you're talking to yourself or you're starting to do things that other people are finding bizarre or unusual. Okay. And uh, would things like, say, autism and other things come in a different category altogether? Yeah, because autism spectrum disorders or um, 
any of the disorders of social interaction would would be quite different. Uh, they are more developmental disorders. Okay. They, they that's how you were wired to be, and you're right. born like that for whatever reason. And so they won't. And they, yes, children like this can go on to develop a lot of anxiety and depression, mm. but. It's not necessary. They will. Okay. So those are largely developmental disorders, Correct. and they there's come, a big yeah. range. There. And mostly diagnosed in childhood, unless you completely could not. It's it's very hard to miss the common autistic disorders, but the very subtle ones you might miss it. Okay. But uh, yeah, in a different realm. And completely outside of this, I'm guessing that can be sort of purely neurological things where there is something genetic or something physiological that's fundamentally challenging in the body, in the spine or in the brain. So that would be an entire category altogether. Neurology and psychiatry would mm. probably go a lot together. So I would say about a lot of neurological conditions do blend with psychological conditions, right. psychiatric conditions. And historically also they were uh, diagnosed and treated together. Yes. In right. fact, the first uh, psychiatrists were not necessarily psychiatrists as much as they were brain doctors or neurologists in, okay. in the long, in long, long time ago. And because... It's very hard to separate the brain from this, the, the mind. Right. They are pretty blended. And a lot of neurological conditions will eventually lead to psychiatric conditions or vice versa. Mm. And if you notice in the public space also, most mm. people with a headache will go straight to see a neurologist. It wouldn't cross their mind that probably you were better off seeing a psychiatrist or psychologist first because a headache is more likely to be a stress headache mm. than something like a migraine, which is not the most common thing out there. Okay. And you're, if you're 25, you're unlikely to have BP, blood pressure issues leading to a headache. So, But very few people do that. They mm. very commonly go to a neurologist. Okay, which is overkill or well, the wrong specialization for... Either that, that's a controversial topic. <laughs> but for the... It would... Uh, it's more comfortable to go to a neurologist. Right. So that sort of brings me to this whole topic, right? How do we, um, we are still a country where it's taboo to speak about mental health. And uh, I remember growing up, there were these silly things that kids would tell each other, you know, you're so crazy, you should be admitted in Nimhans. And that growing up in yeah. Bangalore, being someone being yeah. sent to Nimhans is sort of the worst thing that you can tell that person. Right. And um, so how do we even sort of start looking at this? So as someone who's a practicing psychiatrist, who today is actually coming up to seek medical help even, um, let alone whether, you know, they need it or not. I'm sure millions of people do. Yes. Who ends up coming forward? It's very interesting to me that I have had young people as young as 16 and 18 make their parents bring them reluctantly, reluctant okay. parents, bringing the child who actually is more aware. So that's wow. the generation of young people that are starting to be very aware, would be interested in a podcast like this. Okay. You know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. And into the 20s, they seem to be a lot more aware and more interested in coming. As you go into the 30s and 40s, very unlikely. Into the 50s and 60s, extremely unlikely. 60s okay. are the most reluctant, really don't think they need to be there. Uh, again, for multiple reasons. Since I practice in out of Sarjapur Road. So a lot of my population will be coming out of the IT sector. Okay. And students on that um, belt. Okay. So I have people who could be just kids out of school to people running companies, to people working in companies, their own entrepreneurs, to housewives, to uh, young women who've just finished college. So I'm getting the gamut of people. Obviously, 
given it's a, a setup, it's not a government setup. So we do get a certain socioeconomic uh, cutoff right. to who can come to a hospital. But you get people, I'm getting people who are coming from Kashmir to Kanyakumari to Bangladesh to wow. uh, any Asian country, sometimes from the US too. So, and what kind of um, challenges do they come with? It's, I would say if you had to use one very English word, not a medical word, it's stress. Okay. So stress is what they come with. Mm. And or if it's because panic attacks are very easy to understand, I mean, mm. and they're very uncomfortable, they will come with panic attacks in the sense okay. where you, you're short of breath and it keeps coming and you have palpitations, small places start to scare you and things like that. So, so depression and different types of anxiety, which as Pavitra was saying, even in the uh, data that they got out of the survey are the most common medical mental health conditions. Okay. That's what I'm seeing in practice. And Pavitra, even at White Swan, when you're trying to, again, educate a larger public about these challenges, are most of the questions also coming about depression and anxiety and stress? Or do you get a whole different set of questions? So this is sort of interesting because, you know, the the pieces and the videos and the articles that do best are the mm. ones on anxiety and depression. So we know that when we roll a newsletter out on, on anxiety or depression, it's going to do well, especially right. if it's solution oriented or it's it's understanding if you can manage a panic attack or if you're even if you're a caregiver who needs to manage someone else with an anxiety disorder. So these do predictably well. Those are the pages that do well, very mm. solution oriented. But the people who write in to us, and, and I think that sort of becomes the difference when people write from across the country. And this also, we sort, sort of see this even in a space like Nimhans, um, uh, is, is that people write in in panic when things have boiled over, that I have right. thoughts of suicide. I have a relative who has uh, symptoms of psychosis. What do I do? So you have these sort of emails that come in, which is you know essentially panic emails. But we also see that at a general level of consumption, common mental illnesses are what people are reading about because I think the symptoms are accessible enough mm. for people to know how to articulate them. Right. That, and, and now, at least by now, uh, English media consuming folk would have seen terms like depression and anxiety yes. in the airwaves and Correct. would have seen a fictional character suffer from one of those things at yes. some point. Yeah. So so at least in a certain section, this is a part of the lexicon now. It right? is. So do people sometimes also come in where they might not have clinical levels of anxiety or depression, but, you know, how is that process? Because one of the other extremes of this is also the fear that, you know, you go in, especially to meet a psychiatrist and, you know, they'll pump you up full of pills. Yes. You go numb. You can't feel anything. And, you know, there is this romanticization, especially of depression, right? Thanks to a lot of writers. Media, where yeah. You have to dig into your depression to be able to produce great art or That's great right, writing, yeah. which honestly is ridiculous because most people who, I mean, if you're struggling that much, you can't function. You won't be able to write the way you want to. So how do you come across this? Do you need to persuade a lot of people that medicines are not a bad thing? So I would say I see people for about 30 minutes at my visits. And I would say if I've been doing this long enough, so by mm. the time I get the history, it would have been about 10 to 15 minutes. And if, if it's usually if it's something like anxiety and panic, because they're so panicked about it, it does take a little longer. Right. I have to very hesitantly bring up the idea. And most of it, it's not every time that I prescribe medicine. 
Right. That's the thing. I don't feel like everyone needs medicine. But one so thing even that to... perception that going to a psychiatrist means you'll get meds hmm. is a wrong one. It is a wrong one, in my opinion, because not every person that presents needs medicine. But we have to understand the numbers that Parvitra was talking about are probably, you could say that most people, by the time they come to a doctor, data she has is going out into the community and getting this data. Right. Unfortunately, the people, by the time they come to us, most of the time reach a level of medicine. Mm. Now, if they're more aware, then they can show up a little bit earlier and we could recommend a good psychologist to work with them because there are many therapy forms one could use right. once the diagnosis is made for treatment. Moderate depression at some level is amenable to both therapy and medicine. Severe, by the time if you reach moderate, severe to severe, of course, you have to use medicine. And mm. so I, I can spend an easy 10 to 15 minutes talking just about the fact these are not addicting medicines. You don't have to take them for a lifetime. You will not become a zombie on them. And and uh, despite that, people will then ask you, will I get addicted? So mm. then you have to explain what addiction actually means and what right. is the definition of addiction. So this can take 15, 20 minutes sometimes over the time that they would be there. And then I might even again get a message back saying, but I, I've just Googled this or I've looked this up and, you know, I have another 15 questions on it because you can't obviously give them all A to Z, the list of side right. effects that are potentially out there. Mm. But about most people will not have a side effect. Right. I'd like to pipe in at this point to say that a 30 minute consultation is the exception rather than the rule in India. Uh, that uh, right. Dr. Rao is probably one of the few people who, and perhaps a few more, who'd spend half an hour with the patient and explaining what the medication means, what the diagnosis means. Right. But given the ratio of experts versus the prevalence, mm. um, a five to 10 minute consultation is the rule, is how it does go. So which means that it, it just does make sense for the practitioner to um, guide them to other spaces to get this information, mm. um, which is a part of what we try to do to say, walk into your your uh, psychiatrist's office with an understanding of what medication means, what therapy means. Right. Um, now, now this this is a tall task to, you know, but over time we've developed that language with most other illnesses mm -hmm. that if you did go into a diabetologist, you sort of know what to expect. Right. That if you're going to get your first ever diagnosis of diabetes, they're possibly going to ask you to change your diet, mm. do a few things. You know a lot of this. So the diabetologist possibly is not spending half an hour explaining you know, right. why you should go for a walk or why you should, you know, move to something with a low glycemic index. And we mm -hmm. all know these words. And right. uh, But we don't for psychiatry or medication or therapy or all the other possible treatment this options. Is so true. This yeah. is so true. But also you have to understand across, at least in the Western world also, even mm -hmm. in the United States where I trained, so I can tell you a little more, most psychiatrists spend an average of maybe 15 minutes a visit. Okay. So, and then they in those 15 minutes... Because if they've done it long enough, they know to refer them out to a certain therapist for a certain type of therapy, talk about medicine and keep going. So she's right that 30 minutes is probably not the norm. Right. So if you have five to seven minutes to see a patient, make a diagnosis and discuss medicine, you're unlikely to discuss all everything about the medicine. So what she says makes sense. Read up and go. Okay. And I mean, we see this all the time in other health uh, sectors as well, right? I mean, you go into a doctor, you have a sore throat or an infection, somebody looks at your mouth for a minute. Nowadays, the average amount of time spent with a doctor is rapidly reducing, especially I think in, uh, you know, large setups, you sometimes do like a pre 
interview with a nurse or uh, somebody else and yes. then you know there's one page written up about you and then you go see the okay. specialist or the doctor and i mean that's great from a different productivity point yeah. of view but especially mm-hmm. when it comes to something like mental health you would need that extra time to be able to talk to the patient get them to understand and even persuade someone that this is the right course of action right that would be ideal but we have 6000 psychiatrists <laughs> in the country yes that's it that's yeah. it wow that's what you're up against okay so i mean we we had done a previous episode as well we have a big problem where we don't even have enough doctors in the country right. and that number i think is somewhere between 6 and 8 lakhs hmm. but so basically psychiatrists are 1% or less than 1% of all doctors in the country it's true and uh, we need what 10 times the number 30 times we the need number yes. a psychiatrist per lakh population would be ideal yes okay so so yeah we would need at least i think 20 times yeah as much as the current number absolutely wow and with that i think also um um an extra you know the system needs to change right. because one of the things that the who recommends is that the solution to psychiatric problems or mental health issues are not only psychiatrists that you need a system where you form community where community looks at the first level of mental health issue that yes. a lot of our problems especially at at say the symptoms that lead to depression can be solved by a healthy community or first level intervention which i think in the west is either the psychiatric social worker and a lot of that that falls into place before you even go to a psychiatrist uh, with a symptom so yes. if we are managing uh, the first level and looking at emotional first aid um right. then we don't really need to go to the psychiatrist and you can sort of liken this to any other physical health issue to say that you don't go to the cardiologist um uh, but you go to your gp and then you say right. that you know i'm sort of putting on too much weight and you you know what to do right. so that first level of intervention need not be the psychiatrist otherwise it's going to be a bunch of people who are really really very overburdened with correct because across the world there's a shortage of psychiatrists yes. okay so it's so not a uniquely indian problem no it's not uniquely an indian problem and economically it makes sense for most people to go to a general practitioner or an internist and a lot of uh, the western world does it that way uh, they are pretty well trained the general practitioners and the uh, internists to treat those so called common mental health issues like depression and anxiety only when they start to see that this is becoming a, a more severe form of the illness or this is starting to look like a lot more than just depression anxiety or panic or even if it is obsessive compulsive then it's beyond the general practitioner and then they pass it on to and you also okay. have to understand that in india the psychologists and social workers are even less than there are psychiatrists oh okay so it's not like a pyramid of some sort it's inverted it's an inverted pyramid you get less okay. and less and less wow so um, i thought maybe could we spend time on two of the most common things depression and related disorders and maybe anxiety and related disorders just to get a sense of both what's public perception like how are people coming in and you know how is it commonly treated i mean sure. the idea is not to dispense any medical advice on this podcast but sure. to, just to get a sense of what that's like um both in sort of theory and in practice we can start with of course the prevalence is always so uh for depression itself i think we're looking at a fairly alarming number as far okay. as those national mental health survey is concerned and we're looking at 1 in 20 currently okay. and um that's sizable which means that if you're in a room of 20 people one of us has depression anxiety is not so specific because they look at it as 
neurotic and stress-related disorders, which is at around 3.5%, but they also have other subs, which are phobic anxiety and other anxiety disorders at 1.9 and 1.2. So there isn't an add up over there. But I think the depression numbers are fairly alarming and right. a good reason for everyone to be worried, worried about it. Yeah. And a lot of the times the two also go hand in hand. Right? Correct. The two are quite interlinked in many cases. Correct. Correct. So, so how would you generally go about from sort of early detection and uh, addressing it when it's early and when it still says stress? Uh, that's leading up to something like uh, anxiety or depression to a case where it's clinical, you need medicine, you need therapy, you need everything. I think if you're asking almost like primary prevention or just preventive measures, if you, the more you take care of yourself uh, as much as you can, leaving the genetics aside, you're more less likely to develop symptoms of unless you're born with it or you just have a personality that's more anxious. So there are things a person can do to even work around the stress because it's it's reality. Everyone has to work long hours. Everybody has to sleep less and uh, in a sense feel like they're not getting enough time to take care of themselves. So that would uh, sort of be the first thing right. that most people can do. But commonly, by the time they come to you, you've, you've got the classic symptoms of, uh, let's say, depression, right? Mm-hmm. So you classically have people with uh, who will come to you saying, I've lost interest in what I used to enjoy before. Right. I can't focus at work. Am I having memory problems? Which mm. at for somebody 35 or 40 year old would be not a diagnosis of dementia. So this is something else. But they will wonder if this is a memory problem. Right. Uh, loss of appetite, losing weight, gaining weight. Uh, feel a lot of, mostly it's women again who come and say, I've been crying more than I used to. It's not me to cry. Women who've been confident in the workplace and are suddenly losing confidence. Mm. Uh, men and women will come and tell you things like, I'm thinking, I'm just thinking all the time and they're all negative thoughts like mm. negative ruminations and in in the worst and a lot of guilt parents are living in a different city they're living here and that guilt is natural to be maybe feel a little guilty that why they're not with me but this is an almost guilt overriding everything else mm. and then on an occasion you'll hear somebody saying i've been thinking about suicide uh, it crosses my mind it scares me or i've actually been thinking about it more and more and that's what brought me here so that would be what commonly I get in terms of a diagnosis of depression. And how would you go about treating uh, something like this where, again, it's probably uh, people have been experiencing those symptoms for some time, maybe months, sometimes years, right? Because it's, it's sometimes repressed. We don't necessarily want to deal with it. Right. And I've... Uh, from what I've seen, what little I've seen, a lot of the times it's a big challenge even to admit to yourself that you might be depressed or you might, you know, suffer from a mental illness yeah. because that feels like you have lost. Right. right or, you've uh, given up. Yeah. You've given or or up. you're you're not strong enough. The word right. is that I've become weak and that commonly people yes. will tell you I've just become weaker mm-hmm. and they're not talking about their physical being. You know, they're talking right. about I used to be so strong. And it's and almost like going and seeking medical help because I've given up. There is also yes. that, right? Yes. That if I hadn't given up, then I wouldn't be here. But right. because it's I like have... you're the last resort I have, you uh-huh. know, and it's by the time they come to you. And so how do you go about... Uh, I think the, the statistics like Pavitra presented are very helpful because you, first of all, bring to the attention. Most people, by the time they come to you, have looked it up on the mm. internet and are somewhat aware this is some, some maybe this anxiety, maybe this is depression. So not everyone, especially the younger population, 
the 20s 1820s to the 30s will know that this is so yeah you do have depression this is not surprising mm. um do you realize yeah most of them say yes i was thinking i've read it up but then they wonder if there's anything you can do the mm. the important thing to tell them is most of the time it's curable right and so sort of a hope building it's curable there are treatments available these treatments are not difficult to take so depending on the level of the mm. depression that someone comes with it's either medicine or if it's not as severe as um, depending on the assessment therapy which in india it's called in layman term it's called counseling right and or a combination obviously the best outcomes are in combination of medicine and therapy right uh, and the, i think what happens to people is they don't realize that let's say you were not going to do medicine and you're only going to do counseling or therapy it's not just chatting you can't mm. just sit there and chat it's it's actually putting in work and effort and some of them get surprised because they think they're just going to sit there listen mm. talk about their problems and leave that an active therapy usually requires you to participate go right. home and do some work right some setting some goals trying to do something a little more yeah so they like better. cognitive behavior therapy you have mm. to actually give them inst- you have to write down instances of what happened okay uh, in an instance how did you think about it what emotions went through your mind and all of that and that's a lot of work because mm. psychoanalysis is only one of those therapies where the therapist actually doesn't say very much at all that's not okay. very commonly practiced in india okay. so most therapies are if done an evidence based that means there's actually some research evidence are things like cognitive behavior therapy mm. dialectical behavior the interpersonal therapies which are pretty active so even this mental image of even a psychologist who is talking to you there is still this old idea of you know there's a freud like character who's sitting and somebody yeah. uh, is on a couch a couch i i honestly don't think i've seen any actual uh, psychology office where there's that kind of a couch and you're sitting and staring at the ceiling and then talking about <laughs> your feelings so is that that whole idea of freud and uh, from uh, freud completely removed from what the reality of mental health treatment is today Yeah because a lot of treatments evolved with I think with the introduction of insurance and time limitations and money limitations. Okay. And so and then for some reason some therapies actually did turn out to be very good. The okay. Freudian style of therapy which would be very open ended which would actually last years. Okay. So the question is who's willing to go for years and years right. and ideally done two to three times a week. Wow. And who can afford it? Who who's going to afford that anywhere yeah. in the world? Right. It's a luxury to do psychoanalysis because psychoanalysis is something you can do even for somebody without a mental health issue. Hmm. Who's going to afford that and who's got that time? Right. So the short term therapies and when we say short term in mental health we're talking 3 4 months minimum. Yeah. Which is which is long which is like the length of a chemotherapy session or something, right? I mean Yeah, like, a cycle let's say. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, so so it's it's quite long in regular health terms. Yes. So all of this surprises people. Mm-hmm. When you say medicine that's also 3 to 4 months. Right. That surprises people. So all this hesitantly has to be put forward so you can get a buy-in from your patient. Mm-hmm. Because you're not recommending it there are guidelines that say here's what treatment would work. Okay. And to get people to believe that might take some time. And uh, could you tell us a little about the medicines because there's all kinds of news all the time about say for example one of the most popular drugs is prozac which is fluoxetine, fluoxetine. Right? and you know there are now many mixed results from trials saying you know, maybe the efficacy of uh, fluoxetine is not as much as it was made out to be so with all this kind of uncertainty in the kind of 
drug options that are there how would you go about uh, administering them and how do you monitor like for example the first time i learned this i was very surprised one of the side effects of fluoxetine is suicidal ideation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is something which would be a symptom yeah. in many patients who would come to you come to you right and so if something like suicidal ideation increases after you give the drug mm. patients must be aware that this is the drug so you yeah. know they can at least isolate it and know that maybe something else is working or not correct so prozac was the drug that was popular in actually the current mm. medicine that's the most popular across the world is called escitalopram which okay. is lexapro in the us and, and it's nexito and mm. lexapro etc in india so that is actually a lot more popular now is it because uh there it's a better medicine i'm not sure of that prozac mm. being fluoxetine being slightly older does tend to have a little more objective side subjective side effects and that people do experience a little more difficulty tolerating it when they start okay. once they get used to it it's all mm. the same right now is this data driven i'm not sure it's data driven who studies fluoxetine anymore if they want to study they're looking at the newer drugs nobody's okay. studying even escitalopram very mm-hmm. often anymore because there's even newer drugs coming okay. out so the suicide ideation part is mm. actually in the age range what's called a black box warning okay. it's only to the age of 24 25 as far as the pharma company itself says it in mm. their package insert for young people until the age of 24 25 there can be an increased risk of suicidal thoughts when you start the medicine because it tends to be activating to start okay. with in my practice i have never seen it Okay. So by the time people come to me, they're already suicidal, and I actually do tell them, "Hey, if you have a young person sitting, I do openly say to them, 'This is mm. there. I have never seen it. It is in the data, and uh, if this happens, you got to let me know. If things worsen, come back to me. Mm. And that's see, that's the reason we tell people to come back often, which right. is another challenge we have in India because the perception is that why do I have to come back and see you again? Because there are subtle initial side effects, nausea. Mm. and and the most common thing that people stop medicine is side effects the okay. effect starts to occur in 3 to 4 weeks but the side effects are quicker right right away uh-huh. tonight if you start the medicine you might get giddy nauseated have a headache next morning uh, feel fatigued tired and so promptly everyone stops the medicine hence technically somebody should come back within 2 weeks of starting the medicine to see me convincing people to do that can be a challenge so what tends to happen is they may not come back and they may not like the side effect and they stop the medicine wow so but once you start the medicine you actually stay on it mm. it's almost like you're not taking anything it it's that easy to take for the mm. most part and the effects are seen 3 4 weeks down and the effect goes on for several weeks and even the side effects just feel scarier and are more unknown with something like this right like for example when we take an antibiotic we know that this could interfere with our gut so if you take more dahi or something else for example you're sort of supplementing your gut bacteria so you sort of know that this is an effect and you know how to deal with it and if you're if you already have say reflux or some other issue you know that you have to take extra precautions but when it comes to side effects of a mental health drug we don't even know where to start hmm. often right so so they just maybe feel scarier they may feel scarier because the way i say it is just like an antibiotic you may be hmm. a little more tired and just mm. like an antibiotic you might have gut issues right and just like an antibiotic because you're so tired you might get a headache right 
Right. And that's, I try to correlate. Of course, antibiotics don't last for months mm. unless it's a chronic condition. If it's an acute pneumonia or something acute right. in your stomach, then it'll be a few days. Mm. The only difference is timelines. Right. I try to correlate them together and nothing that you take from the external is going to come without nothing. Everything has a, it can have a small side effect. Right. But I must ask if, you know, it is common practice for psychiatrists to ask um, patients to come back and report their symptoms because that's one of the things that we hear, um, you know, the the questions that we get a lot about psychiatric medication, which we tried to, uh, you know, dispel to a great extent to say, here are the facts and here are the questions you should ask. Do a lot of psychiatrists in India ask patients to come back and say that, you know, these are going to be side effects and I want you to come back and report? Them, I think and you have an alternative. Realistically, no, right, Pavitra? Mm. Because we're looking at 6,000 psychiatrists. Mm. So they're spending an easy three to five minutes on a patient. Mm. And that's it. And ask, and then if you've got 40 patients, 50 patients, asking them all to come back in two weeks is not going to happen. Yeah. And in my own practice, sometimes the numbers are such that two weeks, they just won't get an appointment. So you have to work around it. Mm. One could say, why don't we hire uh, somebody to sit down with the side effects as a dietitian for a diabetologist would. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, those are things to think about. I don't know if anyone's doing that. Most people, or go to a website like White Swan Foundation. Yeah. All this information's yeah. out there. Actually, it's all out the there. The scary stuff is if you go to WebMD, right? Because it's eventually always cancer. Yes. <laughs> so that's, that's the challenge with going online. That's the challenge. Is that you will find the worst... Um, disorders or diseases that can explain your symptom and that can obviously be scary. It can be. I would say read, go to the internet before you get to us. Ah. Once I've met you, I'd rather they didn't go back to the internet and look at it again because we've started treatment. So trying to second guess it might not be quite the way to go. And in all this, Again, when you are maybe talking about it socially and so on, people will say, oh, you need to pick yourself up or you need to just yeah. get some exercise going and, you know, you'll get everything working again. And then all these kinds of things that essentially end up making you just feel worse Correct. because you're unable to do any of those things that people are telling you to do. This is true. And uh, how how do you sort of flip that around? Uh, how do patients try and flip that around? When would you recommend something like regular exercise or diet and so on right. in the course of a treatment like Most this? Most people don't come to us because they've been told, pick yourself up, pick yourself up. So the idea, what the themes that starts to run is that I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm too weak for this. I'm not right. strong enough. So this theme of not being strong enough becomes a, until they reach a point on being almost non-functional. Right. So they've reached a point where they're going to either get fired from the job or, or they're failing in exams, not showing up to classes, not showing up to work. At home, for a, for a homemaker, it could be not even taking care of the children, right. not being able to get up to go to the kitchen to cook. So by the time they come and yeah. so the way we put it is that I usually, this is the way I do it, is that I say it's like the engine needs servicing. You haven't serviced it and now you're trying to run it. Mm-hmm. Your, your first gear won't work. Your second gear, forget third, fourth and fifth gear. The right. engine is going to say, I'm not running anymore and it has shut down. So you can tell yourself as much as you want, pick yourself up, but the engine has shut down, which is basically the brain. So what the brain is trying to tell you is that you need help. Right. I'm not going to switch on until you get some servicing done. Okay. Most people seem to understand that, mm. that like any other vehicle, you got to give it a break. Right. And then most people seem to get that. 
but but a break alone is not sufficient when things are that bad right it's yeah. a break plus Help. a medical intervention of one kind or the absolutely, other absolutely absolutely right so let's take a maybe a quick break and come back i want to maybe ask a few questions about addiction and other sure. related things which i don't know how you would classify them and then maybe we can talk about what the mental health act is all about and how we are trying to think about it as a country and perhaps as a society Hello everyone, I'm Zain. I'm Avanti. And welcome back to a brand new season of Marvel's Lost and Found. A show on mental health and its stigma and we're kind of making it an open conversation. Pretty much, yeah, and we're really really excited about this season because we have a number of guests on and we'll be talking about things like addiction, grief, children and mental health. Exactly, children and mental health and our listeners have also written in yeah, this time. Yes, and, and we have an episode dedicated to that. Yes, and guys, thank you so much for writing and we really really appreciate it. And we're really excited for you to tune in on Tuesdays on the IVM website or app or wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can find Marbles Lost and Found on Facebook or you can find Marbles Lost and Found on Instagram as well. Uh, the handle being Marbles Podcast India. Can't wait for you to tune in. Thank you very much. See you guys soon. Hi and welcome back to the Pragati Podcast. We are talking about mental health today. Doctor, one of the things that we have not talked about at length yet is suicide. How and we, from farmer suicides to suicides among, I think, young urban. uh children and teenagers when we're seeing a lot of individual instances the overall numbers also seem to be reasonably high can you give us a sense of how we should even think about suicide as a mental health related challenge i think to sort of a discussion pavitra and me were having before we came in here was probably separate out the socio economic causes of self injury and suicide mm-hmm. from mental health related suicides that we might see in places like bangalore or second or third tier cities right. so we probably won't be able to comment much as a mental health professional about suicides happening in the socio economic context of farmers that's probably a policy issue mm. uh, related to you know the farmers right. and their uh, but, difficult... but even there i i i just want to add that i think there've been a few studies that's right i mean while there might be a million farmers who might be suffering from debt and mm-hmm. all the challenges of our uh, agrarian system mm. you don't still have a million people who commit suicide yes. it is a subset of the same people who might be suffering from the same mm-hmm. economic pressures mm. but because their support systems might be nicer they might have a little more of an extended family who cares about them because of something um there have been some studies which said that was enough to actually reduce the rates of uh, suicide in that place so to an extent the same thing might apply there too right Why? to an extent and you're mm-hmm. right it's not like they are completely unrelated uh, death by suicide is death by suicide right. it is related to a level of trauma and level of stress that you were unable to handle and hence that act or that that outcome for right. you so obviously you are immensely distressed hmm. and that they have a connection and of course a lot of them might have addiction problems uh, you know interpersonal problems problems at the level of you know property everything right. yet um, the what we see on a and but those tend to happen in numbers you know mm-hmm. it you will at least what we hear in the news is about so many farmers committed suicide it's almost like a spate of suicide so right. in my mind it it's a probably a slightly different 
right topic of discussion but if you're talking about an everyday what we read in the newspaper about young people committing suicide mm. uh, in their 18 20 school students committing suicide at the age right. of 17 18 20 year old 30 year old 40 year olds completing suicide it it is important to understand that it's the most important thing to understand that it was not a sign of weakness mm. it's not because they became a weak individual but always a weak individual that they took this step right uh it's really important to understand most people who complete suicide have talked about it a few times before have said it to somebody more than once mm. have brought it up to either the university school workplace some colleague has heard them say it or a friend has said the, the, the unfortunate part is this does not then get translated into let's freak out and get them help because right. that is how the reaction should be please freak out please panic and get them help because just because somebody says it even laughingly unless it's in the context of a real joke which it really isn't funny right i would take it seriously the minute i hear that word and even if it means at the end of that chatty party you go and say hey listen did you mean that did or were you actually joking did you did you really were you really and take it a little ahead and if you hear you know what actually i have been then it's time to not think anyone say listen let me just take you somewhere would you like to talk to someone mm. and see what you can do to help them suicide is not taken lightly thoughts right. of it are not taken lightly at all and this idea that it's this sudden impulse that people have and then they commit suicide is mostly rubbish yeah most people don't suddenly commit suicide most people have thought about it several times talked about it several times made plans about it several times before they have that level of despair to complete it i'm going to chime in with a number with that that sort of establishes this uh, one of the numbers that i read was that for every one person who tries to kill themselves by suicide there are 100 people who've had thoughts of suicide wow so you know there's from thought to expression to you know there's like a whole range that's going on before someone actually tries to do something um so and all of those are potential places where someone can intervene absolutely absolutely and and uh, is there a different psychology with attempting suicide as well because i mean like you use the word completed uh, their act of committing suicide uh is is there sometimes a cry for help even in that action and in that vocalization of thoughts around suicide uh so there are those you know there's a lot of uh, young people uh which again used to be what people thought was a western concept where mm-hmm. they cut themselves to feel better and is that self harming behavior and you see it more and more in schools now right. was it there before i'm not sure uh it's certainly there now where they self harm i would take that behavior as seriously as mm-hmm. somebody that's tying a noose okay to kill themselves that to me is as serious i would not take anything in that range of thoughts plan an attempt lightly all of it to me is important all of it is a danger sign mm. so oh yeah she does it all the time look at her hands or whatever i would take that really seriously so so in this um you know i mean we wanted to eventually come to government policy laws and action so on something like suicide especially because it's something that is more likely to happen maybe in you know late teens early 20s kind of an age how would you start intervening for me to think of government state government seems very bizarre mm. and for me to only think about a hospital where there are mental health professionals is still one part of it mm. but say how would how should schools and colleges think about this if if suicide is 
that common and suicidal ideation is even more common so um i think we'd like to go back to where it is prevalent first mm. that there is like a huge prevalence number between i think the age of 40 to 49 um okay. in the indian population the prevalence rate itself is 1% which is significant mm. uh so you're really looking at different kinds of communities and different the gender and there are lots of things that seem to come into play when it comes to ideation itself mm. uh but like dr rao was saying that from a community perspective and if you look at different communities and how we define communities workplaces schools colleges right. and so on that a lot of the intervention actually comes from the people around you and mm. that then becomes the solution to a great extent to say that do i know to respond to a person who is expressing um mm. hopelessness or uh, just some people may be very direct but often it comes in the language of just hopelessness that i don't feel like going on anymore so mm. to understand the semantics uh, around this will do all of us very good because right. um, and it's better to err on the side of caution it may be someone who's just had a bad day mm. but why not intervene at that point that's that's right. not a bad idea in anyhow so, so how would you do this organizationally one i understand that it is a largely a societal thing to solve as well mm. if you're partner or your parent or your child or your friend gets to notice your behavior and then act on it or not you to act on it that's yeah. wonderful yeah. but what would we need institutionally whether at a workplace at a school or college i think at the at the school and college level like a lot of the different parts of the world it really would be very useful for universities and even schools and a lot of them have it already mm. to have a system of counselors uh be connected to a psychiatrist if required but at least have a team of well trained counselors uh, right. and uh, and for a that would be in a school college level again we were talking earlier where the numbers statistically mm. of people with anxiety depression uh, panic attacks generalized mm. anxiety social phobias will occur in that age range of anywhere from 16 to 25 26 30 so most people are studying around that time so as a university or as a school or college you can't say this is not going to happen at my institution biologically it is going to happen in your institution right. and then the stress of work into your 30s 40s now that's a different level i know a lot of mncs and a lot of companies have started this counseling over the phone mm. where which is a, probably a safer way so you don't have a face in front of the voice and you can do counseling without almost maybe incognito i don't i'm not sure mm. if it works like that but it certainly is a better way to do it so universities workplaces have to accept that this is going to be a reality because it's all in the injury of working place people and mm. students so to not acknowledge that this is going to be a part of it is going to be a a loss for a company if if you've got a bunch of depressed people the number of days what is called dailies the days lost to disability is going to go up so right. somebody who has severe depression anxiety is not going to show up for work more days than somebody who has the flu right let's say for one day or two mm -hmm. days so you're going to lose productivity from that individual and if you're saying one in 20 have depression you've got to have a lot of people in your office who have depression and are not showing up for work so it makes sense economically even for a company to have a good system of therapists and counselors if possible a psychiatrist on board some way one way or the other to help people and so so this is sort of along the same lines as large companies now having gyms and other uh, spaces at their workplace because again if an employee is more healthy more fit and so on then they can be more productive employees so it's in their 
pure self interest naked self interest to promote the mental and physical well being of their employees and you're talking about right? preventive is yoga they have free yoga classes they have gyms and right. you can do many things but we are saying one in 20 has medical conditions mental right. health at diagnosis yeah. so you can't get away from the fact that in your company you're going to have a lot of people with it so you might as well deal with it Right, and and, I, and this is the same with colleges as well. I would say totally with colleges. This right. is also the age range of the start of severe mental health issues like schizophrenia and bipolar, which would probably be a topic for another day. But they occur in the age range of eighteen to twenty-five. Right. So you can't get away if one percent of the population or zero point five percent of the population has rare mental health issues. You will have a few kids in your university suffering from it. And. the typical institutional response from a university especially in india has been clamp down don't talk about it sort of hide information bury it because you're scared of sort of risking your reputation saying oh look at these talented young minds who go to your top institution and then commit suicide because you all messed up right so this so there's this sort of tendency to just bury this news rather than you know figure out what the problem is and then try to address it in the right way i think it's a universal problem mm. i i don't necessarily know that it's an indian problem it's a mm. universal problem because mental health is still stigmatized across the world mm. how severely stigmatized might vary right. india is probably a lot more stigmatizing to be mentally ill than say in europe or in the us so yet and all it's not only here that we hide that information right. but society itself wants to be you know head under the sand attitude so as long as society is doing that every mm. institution will do the same thing and the quicker we understand that you can't keep your mm. head under the sand very long because it's right here in your face the mm. faster we'll find solutions so so to address this you talked about counseling and uh, there's this completely unhilarious story i have about someone from a university you know uh, who had a student who was suffering clearly from um, Uh, mental illnesses who recommended to the student and their parent to go seek counseling and the parent was uh, ignorant enough to think that this was career counseling <laughs> so um, so so when we talk about counseling yeah. even that is um something we need to unpack right so could you talk about counseling psychology and all the practices apart from psychiatry and maybe the prescription medicine Sure. Uh, what role do people play? Uh, what's that like in India? So in India, uh, I'm I am a psychiatrist, so I'm talking as a psychiatrist about psychology. Um, the the India does not have a very well regulated system of what is a counselor to what is a psychologist, what is the qualification of a psychologist, hmm. what is the difference between somebody with a counseling degree versus somebody with a PhD. Right. So in India, you could do a small workshop. and get a certificate in counseling or you could actually have a full 3 4 6 year degree with a phd hmm. and be a psychologist right or you could have an mphil which is a bachelor's masters and then the mphil which makes you a clinical psychologist in india okay unfortunately there is no governing body that makes you register with them and and therefore somebody can look it up on a website and say hey here is a psychologist with this degree Hmm. So it's really important for a person to do their own research and find out what kind of help they need. The average person with stress, say just hmm. lot of overwhelmed at work, I don't think I'm organizing myself very well, would benefit from seeing somebody who's a counselor, let's say who doesn't even have even maybe even a bachelor's degree. I've had people tell me they did engineering and then did some counseling courses for 6 months and decided to open a counseling center. Okay. So you might be somebody that could go to such a person. Now you have anxiety and depression. 
to a level where it's starting to affect your life occupationally, socially, interpersonally, personally, then seeing a, a counselor with a six month, I'm not sure will necessarily work out. You might want to see somebody who actually has a training in psychology, right. who knows how to do forms of therapy like CBT, DBT we talked about before. Right. And diagnose you perhaps, right? Absolutely. And this is, an, I'm assuming that they haven't seen a psychiatrist and they do not have a diagnosis. It would be very dangerous then to go to, frankly, dangerous it may be a controversial work to go to somebody who's not actually trained in the field of clinical psychology. Clinical right. psychology requires you to go to a hospital and see patients. And in a place like Nimhans, you would go to a place, train for years to see patients and know the diagnostic criteria. Somebody with even a master's from a college in psychology will not have that. Okay. So then you have to know if you need a diagnosis, either you go to somebody with an MPhil hmm. or a double master's in psychology or to somebody with a PhD in psychology who actually knows how to diagnose you and will make the correct recommendation of seeing a psychiatrist or not seeing a psychiatrist. Do you need medicine or not? Can I help you professionally? Right. And because what happens is it's very important. People, I think, lay people think counseling yeah. is talking, just chatting. Mm -hmm. And family members say, Ye hum bhi kar we can also do this for them. You don't need to see anybody. The, the critical thing is that counseling and therapy is an active form of treatment. It's not just sitting there and talking and leaving the room feeling better, which a lot of people do. They go for that one session and it's not cheap. They go in there. Of course, you're going to come out feeling better because you've had a chance to talk about something. Right. But does that feeling better sense prevail over the rest of the week that you don't see them? That's the difference between supportive therapy, which is talking and leaving the room and mm. active forms of therapy like interpersonal therapy or cognitive behavior therapy. So people, that's the part, like Pravita said, the people need to do their research mm. and find the right person to see. And I think that's an unfortunate part of the system that a lot of the decision making falls in the court of the person with the illness or the distress to say that, am I being served well? Um, as opposed to going to a counselor with possibly a high level of distress and uh, having them escalated because it's not in the purview of their uh, capabilities to say that this is outside of my uh, area. So I think you should go to a psychologist, which is ideally how it should work. Right. But now we're left with a situation where you do your reading and you do your understanding of what am I looking for? Uh, mm -hmm. Is there possibly a level of distress where I require a psychologist? Um, is the psychologist giving you... Uh, nudging you and saying, hey, I think you may need to visit a psychiatrist and get a proper diagnosis. Uh, how do you make that decision? I think then becomes a little bit of the where people get stuck. And I would urge people to use research and go to the internet, find the research on all these interesting forms of therapy that I'm hearing about every day. And I'm like, I've never heard these kind of words before. Right. I don't think they form, fall in the realm of evidence-based medicine. So which means at some level, are they going to work or not? Talking to someone is going to make you feel better. The question is, is this feeling better going to sustain? Right. And and we see this again in other parts of health, right, where uh, people don't necessarily seek modern medical interventions, but go for Ayurveda, homeopathy, and honestly, a lot more bizarre things yes. that are there on the spectrum. But the lines are so much more blurred when it comes to mental health, right? Even with the terms counselor to psychologist to a psychologist with a PhD and a psychiatrist. And and in all of this, like while um, being afraid that a psychiatrist might pump you full of medicines that will feel you numb being one extreme sort of fear, the other being that, you know, you go to the psychologist and you open up and they sort of reject your problem or don't take you seriously or think that 
you know, um, that you're not living some ideal lifestyle is also, I think, a big fear that a lot of people have, that, that you will face judgment in a space where you want to actually be quite open with how you feel. All the more reason you should go looking for the right person. Right. With a person with full training has trained not to judge. Mm-hmm. has been trained not to judge person maybe who has not gone through that level of training may still feel very judgmental being judgmental is a natural tendency of the human being because human being survives on judgment right. so it's not something that you can shut off completely unless you've been trained to do so mm-hmm. so it's critical that you figure out the right person and if it means you have to do your own research in india to go find the right person it's right. worth the time it takes i think one of the things uh, the positive developments have been now, I think people have been crowdsourcing some of this information. Yes. I think in the context of Me Too also, I think there were a lot of people saying, hey, um, let's build a list of professionals whom you can yeah. go out and seek. And I think professionals who are offering their help as well to, right. uh, to victims of um, various kinds of abuse. So, I, and so there has been a lot of positive things, at least at the elite spectrum end of Indian society in the last few years. Absolutely. And I think in this space, more than anything else, it becomes so subjective to say that this psychiatrist or the psychologist worked for me and Mm. here's why she worked for me. Um, And to put that down and not make that uh, this is a good or bad. And because often in a space like this, it's it's not black and white. Almost all experiences with mental health experts fall in the gray. Mm. Um, because there's, there's, there are so many factors as to why a mental health expert works for you. One is, of course, their educational qualification. Then do they agree with you culturally? Uh, mm. Do they speak the language that you do? Do they not discriminate based on your sexuality, your caste? Your, you know, so all of these come into consideration when you're going to potentially talk to someone about a combination of clinical symptoms and emotional distress, mm. and um, which is why these crowdsourced lists Uh, become that important to say, I want to know what the experience of another person with this practitioner is, uh, which a lot of practitioners, I think, have uh, cried foul about to say that, hey, how dare you rate me? But um, which I think is fair. I think it it, it sort of um, makes makes it easier for the person uh, because finding a mental health expert is is a tough enough task. Those of us living in cities with access to the Internet actually have it really easy. And even when it's not a crowdsourced rating or anything, it is often through personal referrals that we yes. go and even yeah. meet any doctor, right? I yeah. mean, you want to go see a cardiologist, you ask sure. someone who's had cardiology issues yeah. or who knows someone yeah. who will refer you because there are a lot of cardiologists, there are a lot of yeah. uh, professionals everywhere and you want to know someone whom you can trust, even if that method of recommendation is not very exact or scientific or good even, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so, but what else do you see happening uh, publicly that that gives you hope on societal attitudes changing towards mental health? What gives you hope? <laughs> I mean, you working in a nonprofit who's tirelessly trying to sort of uh, inform people, and as a medical professional who's seeing patients day in and day out. Uh, I think um, you know, to some extent, just in the five years that White Swan Foundation has existed, I think the conversation around mental health not just in English, but also mm. in some local languages, um, has expanded so much that it's um, it's quite heartening. Uh, so we we see that there is um, a sort of language developing around that. And, mm. you know, if you look at something like Instagram or even um, uh, there are other social media spaces where you have memes on mental health. And so for people to express themselves to say, you know, simple things like um, making a joke about how you don't feel like mingling on a daily basis. And mm. that's mental health you're talking about, but right. it's, it's sort of become like this 
uh, you know, this thing that that uh, the millennials yeah. talk about. Um, so all of that is quite heartening that people are, are very open about their experiences and are sharing. And it's um, common knowledge. And if you go to colleges, you'll see um, a lot of if you have a conversation in a college um, classroom, a lot of them will come up with conversations on anxiety, depression and thoughts of suicide that mm-hmm. a lot of them want to be responsible for their friends' mental health. So that's definitely heartening. Um, even in terms of the access to our own uh, portal, uh, we have people accessing us in English, of course, but a lot of people uh, coming to the site for, uh, in Hindi and Bengali, which is uh, right after English in terms of numbers. Wow. So, okay. um, which only means that people are looking for this information, and that's good news. Right. Uh, which means that they want to read about it before they eventually go looking for help, right? And I. I think all of those are good signs. Those are good signs. Good yeah. signs. The fact that more people are coming to see us professionals is, is a good mm-hmm. sign. I think the numbers are more than I have time for actually. Okay. To see. So that's a good sign. So obviously people are looking up website. They are looking at things. And they are trying to say that there is something that can be done about it, which is very heartening again. So in that sense, even among the within the medical community, uh, hopefully there are more doctors who are open to specializing in psychiatry as well, right? Do you see, did you see stigmas around that even while in your professional career? Yeah, so uh, I've heard a lot of people's, uh, people tell me over time that they were dissuaded from going into psychiatry. Okay. And that it was something they had to push through or they just gave up on it because nobody in the family agreed to it. Right. So it is still uh, not a very common field for many reasons across the world, even actually in the United States, it's not the most common field because it's it's the one field that does not bring you a lot of economic advantage as opposed to going into radiology or dermatology. Okay. And yeah. also that probably at some level, the toughness of or, or the right. work it takes to be a psychiatrist. It's just... Um, doesn't make sense for a lot of people across the world. Right. I mean, you have to be a lot more mentally and emotionally also engaged with all the patients that you <laughs> yeah. see. A, a lot of it is chronic. This, so, right. you know, unlike a surgeon, maybe you could hmm. solve it by surgery. And this is a long process. And, right. Um, but But clearly there is already more demand than there is supply. This is true. Okay. But this may be an interesting uh, uh, point to uh, bring in the, uh, the, the thing that while there is a stigma in the general community on mental mm-hmm. health, we also know that doctors themselves, like across board, um, actually suffer from mental health issues and don't report it. So there's a huge level of stigma in the mm-hmm. in, in medical the, community in the medical community uh, in reporting uh, signs of mental health. That perhaps also gets reflected in the prescription side, right? Because as you mentioned, there are certain um, common medications that a GP or somebody else might be able to prescribe. Say, I mean, you have a bout of anxiety, somebody prescribing sort of um, short-term anti-anxiety or anti-panic attack sort of medication. Anyone can do it, but perhaps fewer doctors do it in India because of different uh, beliefs of their own. I think in India, the training system is not yet equipped to handle the level of mental health issues. Mm. At the MBBS level, in my own MBBS level, okay. 25 years ago, there was only 15 days of posting to psychiatry. Okay. So, first of all, you're not exposed to psychiatry as a subject, so you will not necessarily develop interest in it. And what do you learn? So, then if you decide you're going to do become an internist after that, you do MD in medicine, or you decide to practice an MBBS doctor, right. you really don't know much about psychiatry for you to be comfortable even making the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And let's say you can't come from a culturally uh, 
cultural society which really does not encourage having mental health issues is something to talk about that will be a part of your cultural system belief system too right. so you may not agree to even think about it as a problem right and therefore not diagnose it and therefore not recommend treatment at all for it say medicines are bad for you so i think at a very systemic level everything so at a policy level a lot of changes need to occur in the medical system in india right. to handle this crisis and and one big part is what we already discussed about how do you figure out how to regularize this whole psychology profession mm-hmm. and what gates to put what licenses to put such that people can understand who a psychologist is a clinical psychologist versus a counselor well that's the next level beyond because psychologists don't come under medicine Right. So they don't have an MBBS. So they don't. They're mm. not doctors. They could right. have a PhD. So it could be a doctorate. But that whole regulatory system is, is a outside. very big challenge. Mm. But within the medical community itself, right. and the, at the level of training, a lot of changes are being implemented. And, and now is the time of, of of flux, right? You have the National Medical Commission. Yes. You have a new bill. So I think now is the time where, say, syllabuses and other things, are if going, they're being revised. Yeah. this is i think an important issue that needs to be it is being be, addressed it okay. is yeah and all of this comes under the academic purview but you know there's the entire other space of of uh, apps that are um, catering to mental health um, um right. you know uh, help and there's uh, online counseling there's phone uh, based services um mm. also out of regulation so do you call yourself counselors do you call yourself listening services right. now a lot of this communication is very important to the con- consumer ultimately to say am i accessing someone who's going to listen to me or someone who's going to give me a solution to my problem right right, right. and so th- a lot of this nomenclature then becomes very important in as right. a part of the regulation process so so what's happened recently with i think the mental health act and other things passing how is the government thinking of this um so i think the mental health care act was a significant step forward there are of course several several loopholes uh depending on where you come from whether you're a person with a mental illness whether you're a caregiver but on the whole i think the um the view is that it's largely a very rights based um okay. act that it looks at the access to mental health care being as a primary right of the indian citizen which i think is a step forward as opposed to where we where we were now it's a slow process of in- implementation but what they really have tried is to say that every single person in a community should have access to care should have access to care in the geography that they are in mm-hmm. should have quality care and and care in a form that um uh, gives them dignity and recognizes uh, and doesn't discriminate so all of these have been mentioned um the criticism of the of the act is that it's loose that you can you can right. sort of read it the way that you can which is sort of the way that most legal um, right. uh, language goes but i think it's, it's um, sort of being looked at as a good basis to build on and then to say that the state has some powers you look at some district level um, implementations and you so it's going in in a good good directions and but there are other conversations about what happens with pe- persons with serious illnesses you know mm-hmm. conversations about the advanced directive who takes decisions on behalf of a patient who um or a person with a mental illness who uh, does not have the insight to make decisions so right but i think it's a process and it's begun and we're more in line with international standards now than we have been for Uh, decades years, now yeah. yeah yeah and perhaps the act and other things sort of approach this not from perhaps the most common things like uh, depression and anxiety yeah. but perhaps from say dementia and sort of 
disorders where a person is no longer uh, capable of exercising informed free will yes. right and yeah. being able to take decisions so which, perhaps which, it starts from a place like that and because even when we talk about say a rights based approach to mental health when it comes to depression or anxiety yes. i don't feel like the right is the barrier right it's no. it's sort of uh, absolutely taboos sort of societal uh, concerns and have presence of enough people that you can actually go to and I don't know if a law can dictate that, you know, you will have a psychologist who you can get an appointment within 24 hours, you know, anywhere in the country. It's very hard to do that through legislation. Absolutely. But I think it's, it's, it begins the conversation of looking at mental health as a disability. Mm. And when that comes into the conversation, I'm not saying that, that the act necessarily says so. But if you start looking at mental illness as a disability and then start to define what disability means, where mm-hmm. you know, and take into consideration the invisibility of uh, mental right. health issues. Um, it kind of builds up to other actions that are that are possible. So, right. in some ways, this is sort of aff- affirmative to uh, recognize the severe mental illnesses and say that what does this mean? What does hospitalization mean? What are the rights of the person? And all of these. Um, any final thoughts to end on? Any positive notes to end on? <laughs> I think it's very encouraging to see people, young people especially, recognizing that they have an issue. And I think they sh- the more that it would be very helpful if this conversation is becomes a common topic for the young people because that's the generation that's coming up and in a country like ours, very young country like ours. I think this conversation needs to be taken forward. A lot more conversations on mental health, I think, would help. So this is all in a good direction. Thank you. And I hope that our um, little podcast episode today takes one extra step in that same direction. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions or comments, do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. And hey, if you like the podcast and listen to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. It'll mean a lot to us. The Pragati Podcast is available on the IVM Podcast app and pretty much every other podcast app and platform. We are there everywhere. This is the amazing story of something awesome. Once Chuck decided to start a podcast. And so he did. The end. Okay, that is a crappy story. But I've got some really cool stories over at my new show, The Origin of Things. On this podcast, I look at the stories of how brands came into being and sometimes evolved out of quite unexpected circumstances. And to make it really fun, I reveal the name of the brand and sometimes a category only at the very end. The show is 5-7 to minutes per episode and perfect for trivia junkies and brand nerds, especially those with short attention spans. New episodes out every Wednesday on IVM Podcast app or website or any podcast app or site that you happen to prefer. End of story, they lived happily ever after. Did you know that Parsis in Mumbai, instead of being left at the Tower of Silence after they die, are now cremated? And why? Because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s. Did you know that the smog in Delhi is caused by something that farmers in Punjab do and that there's no way to stop them? Did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in Bhopal, but three? One of them was seen, but two were unseen. Did you know that many well-intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help? Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? 
Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Verma and in my weekly podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer.